Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about famous Roman horses. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from rainy Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, coming to us from where? Are you in Princeton or something right now? I have no idea. Rainy Overcast Princeton. Rainy Overcast Princeton is our co-host, David Wheel. David, how's it going? Hey, Charles. It's uh, good to be back after our little hiatus. Yes, yes, our little hiatus. <laughs> well, we we apologize for missing the last two Charles. weeks, but, <laughs> but uh, David got a sore throat and was unable to participate uh, two weeks ago, and then his travel schedule was somewhat problematic uh, last week, so we didn't have enough notice to prepare something else for our dear listeners, um, to whom I was actually quite emotionally touched that one person actually asked me on Facebook, when is the next episode coming? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, with that in mind, we're, we're back this week, and hopefully we won't have any more unexpected uh, absences for a while. Um, yeah, to this week's topic, we figured we might approach this show in, not necessarily perfectly themed, but we might approach it in terms of um, five to ten episode arcs of, uh, of, of a concept. The first ten were sort of us laying the groundwork. And now we can get into a second arc, which is going to be either five or ten episodes. We haven't really... It depends on how much material we find um, that it works for without feeling like we need to go somewhere else. Uh, this is going to be about America. And so we're going to start off with today's topic, which is a certain idea of America. We're going to talk about what we think America is as a concept, as a philosophy, what we think other people think about it in those terms... And what are the problems and benefits of approaching it that way? Uh, so to get us started, I'm going to talk about what I thought of when I thought of the concept of America going back as a small child. Uh, because people say, we talk about American exceptionalism. We say America is exceptional. It's the one indispensable country. We say it's the greatest country on earth. We say all of these things. But we never really define what we're talking about. And it always seems like people mean different things when they say that. When I was a a small child, and I'd be looking at, I recall specifically there was a map of America that my father had put up on the wall, and I, I'd spent a lot of time just looking at that, because obviously it's a very vast country, and as a small child growing up in, you know, the woods in New Hampshire, I had been to very few places in America, and America seemed large enough to be the whole world by itself. And as I grew up and, uh, you know, learned more about American history and just the general sense of what it is to be in America... You see that it, it is different from most other nation states in a couple of key ways, uh, which really do inform the American view of itself. Uh, and so for me, what seemed the defining characteristic of America is that it's this land that is not about, um, it's not supposed to be about your ethnicity or your heritage or anything like that. You come to America and it is the place where you can become American. It's this beacon that everybody across the world can come to and be part of because it's this special project that is open to absolutely everybody. It's not defined by, well, we're all Englishmen or we're all, you know, we all share this, this we all share this uh, ancient ethnic heritage that goes back however far. Um, America is the place where once you're here, you're American. And once you're American, you get to take part in this grand experiment. And, um, now, of course, I would later learn that a lot of this was not how other people viewed it necessarily, but 
my family has uh, members who came over to America going back to 1620 and other members that, that came over much later in, say, the 1850s. And so it's interesting to think that whether they came over in the 1620s or the 1840s, uh, which you know, whichever side, they were both equally American in my mind. Um, it's not, and, and in fact, most people don't really seem to have that many ancestors that came over very, very early uh, in America's history. So you look at America and you look at this place where there's this, uh, where it's it's not about. I mean, it's to, once you get past certain things like the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, and it's never perfect. I mean, that's the problem. Uh, America doesn't achieve the goal that it has not achieved the goal that it's setting out for itself. But the goal that it sets out for itself is a very great and noble one, um, which is that of all the world, this is the great nation where anybody can come over from anywhere. You don't hear that many stories of people saying, oh, well, I want to move to China and become Chinese. <laughs> it's not a thing that happens as much. And in fact, you'll hear from people who've lived in China for a long time, uh, if they're white, that uh, I was reading a story about somebody who said that he he had a neighbor who had lived in China for 40 years, something like that, and everybody still referred to him as the foreigner. And that's the sort of thing that you don't you don't do in America. If somebody's lived here for 40 years, you, you, you don't you don't call them the foreigner. They're American. Once you're here and you're naturalized, you're an American. That's just how it works. And the, the, when you think of, like people might want to move to England for work or somewhere else in Europe for work, there are some places that are more or less accepting of people from other countries. But to really properly come and be American, America felt unique to me. Um, David, is any of that how it felt to you as a small child? Well, I mean, I remember as a small child, um, and this is a, you know, embarrassing but potentially charming anecdote. In any case, I was a small child, but. You know, I was all, uh, I was into the sort of, I don't know if it was from movies that I watched or books that I was reading, but like uh, castles and knights and swords and stuff. And I remember at one point thinking as I, you know, was in the car driving around Northern Virginia, looking at hills and stuff and saying like, where are the castles? You know, where, because <laughs> like the knights and stuff, I mean, they were like, obviously around here so you know where were all their castles did we just tear them down or something and then i was mortified when i finally learned that no that had been um a terrible error on my part and you know and this is i'm like six or something right. uh but you know it was a it was a vivid moment to realize like no wait a second that history is a different history that history is european history um, that's not the history of this geography, even though, and this gets to something that I think is, um, you know, I mean, you were, you were, you were talking, you were blending normative and descriptive, um, aspects of your, of your take on what America is, which is that, um, you know, America could be this project that you know is a blank slate on which people write their own stories and every story simply because it's contained here is an american story um and i agree that that should be the way it is uh and i agree that that should be the way it is in part because <clears throat> the the reality is that 
you know, on the world stage, you know, you talk about China, you know, you, you just mentioned China, other empires expanded and conquered and incorporated difference within their borders and then engaged in a, you know, a process where sometimes those differences were assimilated. Sometimes those differences were left alone and somehow balanced, you know, and, and incorporated and integrated without being assimilated. And then sometimes, you know, many times over the sort of age of nationalism that we're more familiar with in our more contemporary, you know, the recent past, um, those unassimilated national elements, you know, burst out and took their own, fates and uh, states into their own hands. And that's kind of the default assumption that we have is like a nation should have its own state. And that, you know, that was reflected in the way that over the last couple of weeks, you know, the Kurdish uh, politics and, uh, you know, Catalan politics are being reported in, you know, reported and being, uh, you know, evaluated. Um, you know, but America obviously didn't work that way because we, didn't incorporate difference, you know, the early settlers viciously destroyed what was here and expelled and exterminated and erased that difference. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever, like those histories are also complex and there was a certain amount of mixing and, you know, um, but, but the overall effect is obviously that it was, you know, it was a matter of extermination and expulsion. Um, and as a, as a person, as a forward looking person who wants to come up with, um, an identity for our society, a, a sort of mission and a goal, you know, for our society that is reflective of the past, but also hopeful about the future. You know, I want to take that past and say, okay, we, we are inheritors of this tremendous bloodshed and terrible, guilty history. And then what do we do with that? Well, you know, one way or another, the past has led to the present. It doesn't mean that it justifies, you know, the past is justified by things that are good about the present. It's just the past happened and now here we are what do we do about it? And we have this incredible, powerful state, this prosperous country with its system of laws, its constitutional order, which are not perfect, but are pretty great. And so now having exterminated difference across this vast geography and expanded to cover, you know, this continent almost, um, we are now in gathering difference. So it's not like the sort of old world continental empires that conquered and incorporated difference. Now we have this project where, as that you were describing, and I'm just, now I'm kind of repeating what you were saying, but in more theoretical terms, uh, you know, we are welcoming the difference of the world to come here and bring that diversity into this territory that had been so bloodily, ruthlessly subdued and 
um, you know, and, and purged for generations of um, sort of European white settlement. And I think that's the that's the future. That should be the future. And this, you know, the problem is obviously that there are people who, um, you know, take the six year old David view of the world where my history, my identity is European identity. And they didn't wake up and, you know, go from six to seven and understand, wait a second. No, that's not America. That's somewhere else. That's a, that's a fantasy of somewhere else. Um, and the, you know, the tension that exists in those European national states is different because, I mean, I was having this conversation, you know, the other day that like, I remember years and years ago hearing, uh, debates about, you know, French people trying to preserve their culture against the forces of sort of global corporatist homogenization. And, you know, they didn't want McDonald's. They want French cuisine. They want to preserve, you know, Frenchness because where, where can Frenchness be preserved if not in France? And in that context, I remember being sympathetic to this idea of, you know, preserving culture. Diver you know, what does diversity means? It means it's a two-way street. It means um, people as individuals integrating into the mass society, learning how to do that, you know, learning a language that is you know, the lingua franca, whatever that happens to be in a particular place, uh, learning skills that they can employ in the job market, that sort of thing. But then also accepting uh, you know, from the other end, tolerating the little differences, tolerating, you know, different types of clothing. It's like, okay, well, it's not, it's not a, you know, European frock coat, but it's still acceptable. It's not, you know, savage, anything like that, right? It's a, it's a two-way street. Um, and so, all right, well, yeah, as an American, I may want, or I may be used to a certain type of cuisine or whatever, but like, yeah, I recognize in France, they, you know, they deserve to be able to preserve their own. However, now the debate has moved on and we're talking about immigrants, you know, from various places going to France. And then the French are like, wait a second, this is my country. And that suddenly is not sympathetic. It's xenophobic and it's ugly. However, it's, you know, it is understandable because it, it's, it's rooted in things that are not purely xenophobic. There's the global sense of like, well, you know, if it, if it's good to preserve, I mean, if, if it's, if it's good for a Gujarati to come to America and want to preserve their Gujarati culture to their own children, and they make that case for diversity within America, well, how do we preserve that diversity on the global stage? You know, where are those national homes? Like it makes sense at some level to, um, acknowledge that people may want to preserve that in their own homes. However, this is the, the unique, potentially unique position of America. Um, Canada is also in this position as well as Australia as settler colonial societies that have largely eradicated and are now the inheritors of this eradication of what was actually the local culture there. And this is not to say that, you know, I mean, obviously there are still first peoples, you know, in Canada, you know, what I actually don't know what um, the term of art is in Australia. Um, 
whether Aborigines, you know, a term that they, the people there use for themselves. I, I, I'm just not aware of that. And then, um, uh, you know, Native American people here, like they still, they still do exist and they, and they should have cultural rights and those shouldn't be, um, completely ignored, you know, because of this picture I'm painting and that I think you more or less agree with. But you know, the fact is that <clears throat> this, this blank slate was achieved with terrible brutality and injustice, but there can be a benefit to it, which is that I agree with you now, whatever, again, whatever person, whatever set of people come and write their story on this blank slate, blank slate in quotes, um, that's an American story and everybody gets to come and nobody has a right to exclude others because, you know, their culture is the wrong culture for this space. And I think that, you know, that sets aside, you know, because, uh, Britain, Germany, you know, France, these are also nations of laws. They also have constitutions that protect individual liberties. Like those are things that America in a sense, um, I mean, you know, America throughout history did a lot to promote those values. But as we discussed before, in a sense, we're a victim of our own success where our constitution was so good for so long that the ways in which it's actually really deficient, um, have not been addressed, you know, because it, you know, for so many years, it's like, well, if it ain't fixed, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now there are these ways in which, you know, seriously anti-democratic elements of our constitution are very hard to correct, even though they're um, very problematic, you know, the, that rule of law, constitutionalism, those are not things that set us apart from other countries in, you know, around the world. Um, but this, you know, this cultural aspect is something that I think can set America apart and in a very good way to say, you know, Japan is a nation of laws. Japan has due process, but you know, this issue of, of the sort of cultural future of immigration and stuff in Japan is incredibly fraught in a way that it's just not in the United States, or it shouldn't be precisely because of our, our very different histories. Um, right. so you're not, you're not coming into a place that has a very particular way of doing things that, you know, <laughs> 90 plus percent of the population shares. America has, you know, it's always resisted immigration to certain extents. Um, you know, we've, we've always had these periods where they put quotas on immigrants from various places where you can look back at the long, every time you hear people argue about why this group of immigrants can't integrate to America, we get to go back down the long list of where those exact same arguments were made about previous waves. Right. And, well, today it's the, the you know, the, the Hispanics can't, uh, can't integrate properly. And we'll use the exact same arguments we used about the Irish. And those were the same arguments we used against the Germans and, the, and, and so on. And it's really kind right. of amazing if you go back in American history and look at um, – I remember learning in law school that there was a point at which uh, Germans were not considered white. Yeah. Which was just – it didn't make any sense to me and on, on a variety of levels. I mean, uh, you know, you can, you can understand how that might you – can, you can consciously accept that that is the – that is what they were doing. But it's still like – it's very weird. I mean, the more you go back and really look at how things used to be, the more it really puts modern arguments in context. It tends to be the same arguments and the same forces in opposition to new groups <clears throat> coming in with the same arguments. Uh, which I arguments that failed then, and I'm hoping will fail again. Uh, right. Yeah. 
But and, um, yeah. so, I mean, I wanted to make a, a couple of points on what you said there, which is, um, you know, I remember when I was a kid learning that you know France would oppose McDonald's because of the cultural imperialism, and as of course a little kid, I was like, but McDonald's is awesome. Why wouldn't you want McDonald's? <laughs> um, and of course, you grow up a bit more and you start to understand those differences. But what what I found amazing as I learned more about you know, McDonald's itself as chain is how much they localize their menus. Right. I mean, you like, there's stuff you can get at a French McDonald's you cannot get in an American McDonald's. If you right. go to India, they will have you know beef-free menus where there's a lot of items that you cannot get in the United States. And I hear sometimes that they'll have particularly great localized items that you can't get in the United States. And I sort of think, wow, it would be really nice if we could get those here. Yeah, the um, McSpicy paneer sandwich in India is, is fantastic. I, it's just I, like a fried cheese. <laughs> I, had a, I had a girlfriend who went to England and was able to get a Cadbury cream egg McFlurry. Oh, wow. And I was just, that sounds so amazing. Why don't we have that here? But that's an example of where, I mean, something that I tend to, as somebody who studied economics in, in college, and I tend to be less anti-corporatist than so many other people on the left, but... One thing that I love about the profit motive and corporations is that, yeah, sometimes it leads them to do bad things, but it also leads them to be very responsive to their customer base. McDonald's isn't imperialist in the sense that imperialists were imperialist because McDonald's wants to go in and it wants to make money. If it makes money right. by selling you know, special uh, French versions of its food and catering to French tastes, you know, maybe they even set up – I've been to a McDonald's in France. I remember thinking it was very different from one in America. Right. Um, you know, well, this is where, yeah, that. like, I mean, like, uh, I mean, this is one of the big conflicts now between, you know, the socialists and the neoliberals that uh, I think throughout history, socialist arguments have had an immediate appeal because they are romantic and they are normative and it's about the way society should be. Um, and it's easy to make the case for, you know, come join with us because, you know, these are the things we believe in and aren't these things inherently good and obviously good. And so that's, that's very appealing, but, uh, obviously neo, I mean, neoliberalism means so many different things. I, every time I use it, it's, I try to like make my air quotes, yeah, exactly. you know, visible. Which, by the way, I will remind word. you once again, but, our audience cannot see. No, 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 that's my point, is I'm, I'm trying to make them visible in my, uh, you know, or not visible, but, uh, you know, clear from my tone. But, um, you know, but like, uh, but the, the, I mean, obviously it means a lot of things, but the, the thing that I'm going to focus on for the moment is uh, basically what you just described of like, let's just look and let's look at the way things actually work and things like the market, which can show us very ugly things. You know, if you study the way markets function, like they can show you very ugly things because they just reflect what people actually do. But if you don't understand what people actually do, how can you set up a system to affect what they do in the future? If you just say, let's all be good to each other, you know, that's an appealing concept, but what does that mean? And how do you enforce it if people often aren't going to be good to each other. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, uh, I mean, I like this over the, over the, over this past couple of days, there was a workshop in, uh, Ottoman on the Ottoman war effort, um, which was absolutely fascinating. 
absolutely. I mean, you know, for me, a big, uh, big nerd, obviously. And one of the, one of the things that came up was the way that the experience of the Balkan Wars taught Ottoman peasants to expect heavy war taxation. Hmm. And so that, you know, rather than rally to the flag and the state and maximize their production of agricultural goods so that the troops could be fed, you know, they knew that the patriotic call to support the national, you know, the imperial effort um, would come. And as a result, they just didn't bother planting because they knew that anything that they did beyond the mere subsistence level they could hide from, you know, the requisition forces um, would be confiscated and they wouldn't get any money for it. And they knew it wouldn't be worth their while. So they just didn't bother. So this is one of these things where like, you know, the normative call in this case, a kind of right wing, you know, nationalist or uh, statist one of like support the troops fight. You know, it, this is something that from their perspective, obviously uh, to the extent that I'm talking to us to like a leftist socialist, they obviously those calls would not be persuasive to them. But the point is that the normative call of like the way people should act is very different from, you know, the, okay, let's look at the incentives. Let's look at what we've taught people in the past, the way that the previous war caused market forces to break down. People learn from that. And if you then don't allow the market to function in the future, they're not going to engage. Yeah. They're not going to produce and you're not going to get anything. And it's going to be, you know, the, the normative goal will not be served. And in the same, I mean, obviously there are applications for this on, um, Areas closer to socialist hearts, like, um, you know, the production of services for, uh, you know, from societies. Anyway, it's sort of, sort of getting a feel, but the point is no, that what, has, what does this have to do with no America? Tangible. Well, it has to do with America because yeah. the constitution was based on self-interest of the various parties. And it was one of these things that accepted, okay, people are nasty, selfish, egotistical. Let's harness those forces and set them against each other rather than pretending that, right. You know, you read those. We could rely on you read the Federalist Papers, and they talk about the design of the Constitution being one where they would have factions set against each other, so that no one would become dominant and overweening. The way that when you have an absolute monarch, you're subject <clears throat> to the monarch's whims. But if people are constantly struggling against each other, then they're not struggling against the people. Right. And um, I mean, I think you make a great point about how the fundamental problem with socialism, communism, is that it's trying to work it's trying to change human nature by force whereas capitalism is trying to capitalism adjusts itself to deal with human nature it wants to work with human nature and it capitalizes it capitalizes on it yes indeed <laughs> um and socialism tries to fight tries to fight against it and in general you're you tend to be better off i mean just as a practical game theoretical standpoint if you're if you're pushing along with a current that already exists that's easier than trying to you know, stop the current entirely or change its direction. Right. Um, nudging the current, you might say. Nudging the current. Um, and, oh, and I thought of one, one thing that I just forgot to mention before. Um, this was another thing that startled me when I was probably 15, 16 when I heard this, that it wasn't until the 90s that people who had been born in Germany from Turkish parents could actually become German. You know, the, yeah. the fact that your ethnicity played a role in your citizenship was something that it's just assume, to me. It just seemed obvious that in the modern day, why would why would it matter where you came from? You just go there and become a citizen. And the fact that because that was the American example that I had been shown, um, 
And, and, and likewise, I was kind of shocked when I learned there were still Indian reservations. This would have been a much younger age than 15. But right. I learned there still were Indian reservations because one of the things that I think the American mindset does um, is it makes it a little harder for us to understand some of these ethnic border concepts. Um, because when you're a small child in America, you know, you want to live in America because America gives you the most rights and the most freedom and all these great things that you're taught about when you're little. But then you go and you hear about some other country where they'll fight endless wars and just conflicts that go on forever and ever over where a border should be or who gets to have their own self-determination. But as an American, you just sort of, you're from this federalist system where, you know, the states have their own individual, the states have their own rights. Um, every, but, but even more than that, everybody's free. At least, you know, this is what you're taught as a child. So as, as an American raised in America, you tend to have this perspective that borders shouldn't really matter because everybody should be free and subject to decent laws in the first place. And so you'd think, well, what does it matter if um, this area that you view as your people's homeland flies this flag or that flag as long as you're all guaranteed these nice rights and everything? But of course, as you grow up, you learn that it's much more complicated than that and that um, – and that uh, how this is something that America is coming to grips with more more with more now than it used to be over some of these gerrymandering cases that you know are in front of the Supreme Court right now, which is just because you're allowed to vote in a place doesn't mean that your vote might not be diluted or end up not mattering at all in certain ways. Um, and that my my uh, naive childhood view that well we all get a vote so it doesn't matter which border you're in is it's just a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I don't know if you hear this, but the internet connection may be very bad. So I apologize if I have uh, heard nothing askew. Well, I mean, given that you were just, you were talking, I don't know if now that I, now that the flow is going the other way, it might be, it might be bad. And I don't know if you want to edit this out. I, that's why I sort of paused a little longer than normal, Okay, but no, I'm uh, leaving this in. They're all going to hear. All right. We, we do this bear in front of our viewers. <laughs> bear in front of our viewers. Well, you know, hopefully, um, my voice will not be like hopelessly corrupted now. On the it actually sounds perfectly fine to me. But anyway, the, um, I'll make a note of what time this is just in case I want to delete it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, in a, again, going back to the frame that I was describing before about the way States rise and spread, you know, through history, these great, uh, empires, you know, that was the, that was just the way the world worked, um, up until the 20th, you know, 19th and 20th centuries, um, there was this sort of uh, centripetal for you know, like forces pushing towards the center, but towards centralization. States were uh, enlarging, you know, and those were the either empires that were spreading and colonies that were spreading. Um, or in the case of, you know, the Italian and German reunifications, you had you know, in gathering, there was in gathering of, of ethnicities and, um, you know, the, you know, the world wars were a combination of imperial grand, you know, great, you know, great games of just imperial interests colliding with each other with, um, national, you know, what you would maybe call national self-determination where this, you know, the lot, if you, if you think that nations deserve to all be in the same state, then, you know, as the German, you know, Kaiser in 19, 
13, 19, 14, you look at a world where 50% of Germans are not in your empire, and you think, this is not the way it should be. You know, if that's the value you you believe in. You know, if you think that all these people should be in the same state. I, by contrast, totally agree with you. Obviously, uh, the fundamental unit of politics should not be the nation. It should be the individual. And if the relationship of the individual to the state is guaranteed by laws and due process and, you know, uh, impartial administration of justice by courts and all that stuff, then it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter what state you're in as long as this, you know, that state treats you fairly as an individual. Um, and so, you know, as an American living in France or Japan or Canada or, you know, Mexico or, or wherever, like you should be able to rely on that. Um, and of course, by contrast, as a, you know, as someone with a less powerful passport, as a, um, as an Iranian or a, uh, Pakistani or a Chadian, you know, or, uh, or anything else, they should also be able to rely on that. Um, however, it, you know, the, the, the problem is that yeah, there are a lot of people with, there are a lot of people who buy into ethnic cultural particular particularism and, um, don't feel the same way about individuals being the basis, you know, the sort of basic political unit. They, some people think, um, you know, families should be, you know, that parents should have rights over their children that imply, that imply, um, you know, legal distinctions and uh, important, you know, changes to the way that states interact with individuals. It's like, well, you know, does your, have your, has your parent given you permission to do this? Uh, you know, and then some people think that, um, various other, uh, factors should be, you know, culture, sort of cultural or religious, uh, identities should be respected and, factored in as opposed to sort of, uh, you know, atomic individuals who are seen only for their individual sort of blank status as citizens. Um, so yeah, it's complicated, but for this idea of America, you know, uh, we, I think we, we probably don't disagree. I, I disagree with your initial characterization just because again, I think you, um, sort of blurred the descriptive versus normative aspects of, of your presentation. But I think we, we fundamentally agree with, um, you know, what America should represent and can represent and has often represented often, you know, I mean, you, you described how there are these waves of resistance uh, and reaction to the reality of, of immigration as it unfolded through history um, so it's very much a process that has occurred, you know, despite the efforts of a lot of people in America over the years. Um, but, you know, it, it's both a descriptive fact that America has, um, in many instances, lived up to this normative goal that we're describing. But 
whatever the description, we both believe that it should be a normative goal that America should pull in, bring in, gather in, welcome, uh, and treat equally, fairly, justly, you know, whoever comes here. And I, I, my, my old boss, I really liked this expression. Uh, my, my old boss said that if you come here and cast your lot with us, then we welcome you. Yeah. You know, and that's, um, I like it, but it's also hard because, you know, what if you just come here, you know, what if, what if some like French person wants to just come here so that their kid can be born here and have another nationality, you know, another, another passport, right? Like that's not, it's not a big problem, obviously, because there aren't, there aren't a lot of people doing that, but um, there are, if you listen to Fox news, well, exactly. And and that's where the, I mean, I like the concept of if you come and cast your lot with us, but I also see how it could be um, focused on in a way to exclude people. Like, oh, you're not a, you're not really, you don't really believe in this country. You're not really here, you know. When it comes down to it, where are your where are your real loyalties? You know, I can, you know, I like I like what it implies, but I also recognize um, that there's a negative sort of exclusive aspect to that expression as well. Yeah. But this is tough, and this is why I mean, we're not going to be able to solve this because, you know, loyalty, patriotism. Um, there are some people who would just say these are outdated, outmoded concepts that have no place anywhere. But I'm not one of them. You know, I, I believe in. I believe that my country has a unique claim on my loyalty. Yeah. Um, and so this is one of these things that's just going to be a continual a continual debate between competing and, values. And that's the thing that, that make one of the things that makes America such an interesting concept is how it plays differently with, um, you know, no, notions that you might get for patriotism or nationalism, because certainly if you go back to early 20th century, when nationalism was a very, you know, high thing. And, and it was Mark Twain, I think, who just defined nationalism as the belief that my country is better than all the others simply because I was born here. Um, and so there, there's that distinction between we've, we've talked before about the the good form, the corrupted form of certain things. The nationalism is the corrupted form of patriotism, where patriotism mm -hmm. is where you believe in what your country stands for and what it does. And nationalism is the America right or wrong. Patriotism right. is the one that says America has to be right. And I will put my I will put my effort, and my resources into making sure America stays right, because that principle is what matters. But nationalism is just saying, no, it doesn't matter where America goes. You have to always agree with whatever America does, as long as I agree with what America is doing. Um, which, because right. uh, if you, if you want to look at some of the competing views of what America is, you can look at what the Fox news blowhard version of America is, which, right. I mean, they would probably be a bit more circumspect about putting it in these terms, but you go to any comment section on Twitter or, you know, or any news article that involves this and people feel less feel that they feel less of a need to um, talk around it. And it's clear what message they're getting from some of these blowhards where they will they will start saying that um, America is successful because it has Judeo Christian values that came from white Europeans. And they'll even, right. they usually drop off the white if it's coming from Fox News, but you'll see it in the comments very clearly. White European culture informed by Judeo-Christian values. That is why we're successful. Anything that is outside of that is a corruption of what America is. And, I mean, that is a view where you can see how that view would exist on its own. 
how it would think, well, Europe has been very successful and America has been very successful compared to a lot of these other places in the world. Clearly, the European part is the important part. But they right. know now that you're not allowed to say white people are better. So you say <clears throat> white European culture. It's the culture. It's not the genetics. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's I mean, that is, I think, a very destructive and dangerous view. Um, huh. Yeah, it's sort of like that's like a hard one to even dig into because there's so much there that's like kind of offensive to open liberal values, liberal in the small L sense of. Well, I mean, it's just it's just crazy. And I mean, it's just stupid. I don't think it's particularly hard. I mean, the <laughs> all right, like, I mean, there should there are easy distinctions to make where, um, you know, the, the, I mean, the problem is that bad. I think often important questions that should be relatively easy to get into and clarify are left to the worst among us who are willing to get into them. So, um, you know, the idea that there are, that there's such a thing as Western or European civilization, for example, um, Obviously, no group of humans in the world is, you know, totally hermetically, you know, has been totally hermetically sealed from others for all time. That's simply not the case. Even the most isolated people, you know, got to wherever they were from somewhere else at some point, you know, in prehistory, right? Like, uh, and so when it comes to, you know, the, the generation of the cultural ideals and history and, you know, intellectual background of, you know, the framers of the constitution in the United States. Um, yeah, they were reading the Greeks, they were reading the Romans, but I mean, this, and this is, I mean, so many people know this, this is cliche. It's almost not even worth mentioning, but you know, a lot of those Greek, a lot of that Greek wisdom where, did it come from? It came from translations into and then back from Arabic. Or oh, know, I would it, say a lot of people actually don't know that. Well, a lot of I mean, a lot of I think, of, very, sure I think it is important. Listening, I mean, our listeners listening, would probably yeah, know that, but they, they I would, think that, that it's important to bring up anyway because the people, it is exactly that's the people why who don't know that are the ones who really need to hear that. Precisely, precisely. And so you know, there was constant cross fertilization. There is no pure uh, unitary cultural identity of the West that separates it from, you know, other people. And that, that needs to be repeated. It needs to be repeated in detail, um, and described. However, you know, it's also not the case that everything is the same as everything else. All, all groups of people are the same and want the same things as everyone else. And, you know, there was such a thing as the Scottish enlightenment, right? Like that's not the European enlightenment. It's not you know, it's like all white people, just because they're white, don't get to like take credit for the Scottish Enlightenment. The Scottish Enlightenment happened as a result of specific historical factors, and it contributed to our, you know, quote unquote, neoliberalism, because, uh, you know, Adam Smith, Adam Smith was, yeah. uh, was uh, probably the most famous, um, you know, participant in that Scottish Enlightenment. But, um, you know, that moment... You know, I, it, it, I don't think it's particularly reasonable to like 
claim that, you know, Ibn Rushd or, you know, Ibn Khaldun or something yeah, is like say, secretly the real, you know, the real author of the, of the Scottish Enlightenment, be, you know, because there was this cross-fertilization that took place, you know, a thousand years earlier. Um, you know, and so... So it's, I mean, as I was trying to, as I was saying a minute ago, it's both easier and it's both, it should be much easier than it seems to be to have these discussions because they're not actually that complicated. The things that make them complicated are, um, the political background of, you know, who wants to have these conversations in what terms and, you know, what they want to do with them. And it seems like the people who you know, talk about Western civilization really seem to mostly be racists. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just a shame. And the, the Western civilization is too important to leave to the racists. Right. Um, but the people who are best able to actually bring the facts of history to that discussion are leery of entering it because, you know, so much of it is, is taken over by the racists. And, um, you know, the people who know the most either just don't want to pipe up or, um, you know, or they have commitments that seem to take them into the kind of, to the sort of overdone, um, multipolarity. You know, the, the thing I was just talking about before about like, there really are no borders and everybody's right. really talking with everybody else all the time. And, but it's also, you know. I mean, part of the problems that liberals in general tend to have is, especially in the United States when it comes to political arguments, is that because they try to represent so many points of view, they're often reluctant to say, well, they being the, the smartest and most educated, uh, not most, not necessarily most educated, but the smartest and most aware ones um, tend to uh, tend to not speak up as clearly as people who are less informed because when you're informed about all the things that are going on, you have to keep putting in all these footnotes and these parenthetical asides and these <clears> caveats, and that ends up creating a very weak argument in the rhetorical sense, not a weak argument yeah. in the philosophical or intellectual sense. There's this hilarious moment I had uh, several weeks ago. I mean, it was it was horrifying and disgusting, uh, but as often happens, you know, now me memory has kind of led it to be just like ridiculous and funny. Um, but I was with a friend who is an Ottoman historian who studies Ottoman intellectual history and is doing pathbreaking, this incredible work on this topic. Um, and we were at a sort of conference, let's just say, and this guy from DC, uh, came up and he has got, he's got some think tank in DC and we were, you know, doing the glad handing thing. And he's like, Oh, so what do you do? And my friend says, I'm an Ottoman intellectual historian. Or I study Ottoman his intellectual history. And the guy said, but there was no intellectual history in the Ottoman Empire. God. They didn't have books. They just, what? They just copied uh, military manuals from the West, and that was the problem, right? Like, that's why those people are so backward. And they're not translating, you know, they don't translate things into Arabic, right? And so he's, he's just repeating these set phrases that he's read somewhere and he he sort of didn't realize that like okay i'm talking to a phd candidate from princeton who says this is what i study 
maybe I should have, rather than, you know, unloading this bigoted, ignorant, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not that it's ignorant, it's just half, it's not even half educated, but it's like, it's something that he's read. He's not just coming up with it. He like, he read that. That's an idea that's out there. Um, so ignorant isn't exactly the right word, but it's totally misinformed. And I mean, precisely as you were saying, it's like, it was simple enough for him to simply tell himself like, oh, I've read this. This is a fact that I know. And now I can repeat it. Whereas someone who actually is doing the hard work of going to the sources, reading them, analyzing them and preparing to write new history, you know, was for the purposes of this conversation, um, on the back foot because this moron is just like, Oh, but that's not a thing. And he, you know, he's able to say that precisely because of all that he doesn't know. Whereas my friend, right. it's like, where was, where was my friend supposed to start? Right. You know, it's like, it would have just taken him hours to like list his whole argument, like all the sources he's read, all the things that he's read. And so the result was that this moron and bigot, um, left that conversation, probably affirming his own ignorance to himself and nothing, nothing was gained at all, you know, from that lack of exchange. Yeah. Uh, right. So it was very, it was very depressing. And like, I, I mean, like I said, in the moment it was utterly horrifying. Um, but yeah. also kind of, you know, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it's not even, it's not even funny. I mean, now that I'm like living the moment again, it was just, right. it was just it's awful. just horrifying. Yeah, There's, just horrifying. um, I mean, that just sort of reminds me just in terms of talking about certain cultural things where you believe, oh, my culture has got to be the one that came up with a smart thing. Um, you, know, you talk about the Laffer curve and supply side economics, <laughs> and you mentioned Ibn Khaldun uh, a little earlier, who I've always, every time I ever read anything about him, I admire so much what I've read that I really need to sit down. And I've downloaded his some of his works on my iPad, and I just keep not finding time to sit down and read them. Maybe right. I'll finally do that this week. But um, for those of you who are not aware, uh, Ibn Khaldun was, he came up with the idea of the Laffer curve in the sense that you could have a taxation rate so high that people would stop producing things because, and that the overall tax revenue would decrease uh, because it would change their incentives. And he did this, this is what, uh, the 12th century. Yeah. Something like yeah. That um, and, uh, and he had that notion back then. And so uh, to a certain extent, what Arthur Laffer did when he tried to make the Laffer curve a thing um, in the eighties it was less about coming up with this concept and more about saying we think somebody in the real world has actually passed that point. Whereas, you know, the original idea was saying, well, in theory, this could happen, but it's hard to imagine a tax rate so high that would happen. Um, like we, we don't think we've actually seen anybody do that. And in the 80s, you know, people on the right decided, OK, we've, we've passed that point. And now people on the right have taken the view that we're always past that point, that right. you can always cut taxes on the rich to generate more revenue. And that's kind of insane. Um, yeah. it just doesn't, it doesn't match the demonstrated reality of any of the experiments with that that they've done. Yeah. It's funny that I, that my sort of throwaway comment about, um, Ottoman agricultural production, uh, between 1911 and 1918, uh, there are no, also, I mean, it, well, it's exactly, yeah, it's the same, it's the same point. Uh, the example is there in the real world, but, um, you know, the idea that it would be generalizable in this way that the, you know, contemporary Republican Party uh, pretends to seem to think that it that it is, you know, that you can right. always cut taxes and always and that would always lead to increased economic output is uh, 
That's just not what makes America America. No, it's not. <laughs> but that's so. I mean, but there are real consequences to these visions, and you know, one of the real consequences that we see right now is if you say, "Why is America successful?" Because America, I mean, there are things that America does worse in other countries, but there are things that it does better. And on the whole, when you look at the might, both economic and military and cultural, that America has assembled in its place in the world, where it really outstrips its pop, you know, it really out, it outpunches its weight in terms of its population very much. And if you, if you try to do that, so why is America successful? How does America keep staying successful? And you look at what people, particularly on the right, want to do, it seems so antithetical to all of the things that made it successful in the first place. Yeah. Um, and one of the key ones is if you were to ask me, okay, how does America maintain an edge in tech? How does America maintain some of its economic edges on things? And we say, well, America has what are America's benefits that lead to so much success? One of them is to say America has the best universities in the world. We've got Yale. We have Princeton. There are some other places I've heard about. Um God. We've got these places, and we have people from all over the world who are falling over each other trying to get into those universities. The right. smartest, brightest people. We have, if you think about, just if you just step back and think for a moment about what a, an amazing boon it is that we have found ourselves in a situation where the smartest people from everywhere in the world wants to come here to our universities to study. And so many of them want to stay here after they've done that. I mean, other nations would, you know, they other nations would do so much to try to get themselves in a place where people want to come. The smartest, best people want to come in, and yeah. yet we have people on the right who are saying, "Don't let them stay. Kick them out as soon as we've educated them. Right. We don't want to give them visas." And that's insane to me. But it right. it, it can make a certain degree of sense if. You take that, oh, we're just Judeo-Christian values of white European culture, and you see somebody who doesn't um, fit your view of white European culture. You think maybe they're not Jewish or Christian, or you know maybe they don't fit in with whatever arbitrary parts of white European culture you believe in. And you say, well, they have to go because their presence will corrupt America, rather than what— um, Rather than, you know, what really happens, which is their presence is helping to make us successful. If you so, I mean, I don't know, that's just one of those places where there are very real consequences to how you take this view of what America is. If you view America, as I said, I did as a very small child. If you view America as the place where everybody can come here and have their part in the American story and anybody from anywhere comes here, becomes American and, you know, that's all great, and they all contribute, then, yeah, you want to bring in all the smartest people everywhere, and you want to do everything you can to keep them here. But there are people who don't want to do that. They tend to be the people who have, I mean, as we've said before, you know, we're not really supposed to call them racist, but racist people who just don't want different people in. And it's actually kind of amusing to me that, you know, white European culture, they also hate Europe now. You know, they, they think Europe right. has this horrible... It's almost as if so. If you wanted to look at, I, I say, right, it's like like New York values, you right? Know, like if European I want to talk values. About or, why yeah. America is successful? I would start saying that you know we're fortunate enough to have this vast, vast piece of land, just huge. America is a huge country. We have this vast amount of land filled with tons of natural resources. There's um, just so much there that's bountiful from the land itself. We had this fortuitous circumstance for ourselves again, not for the native peoples. 
Um, fortuitous circumstance where... Well, it's another, another thing where it's hard to strike the right balance because... Right. You know, we can talk are... about how lucky we were to have all this open space, but at the same well, time, no, it's I'm just open because we killed the people who were there. Yeah, but not all of them, and we right. are still native people. I mean, there are yeah. people who are you know, descended from native people who are part of this we now, right? Yeah. I mean, like, there's not, there, there aren't that many uh, as a share of the population, but they're but they're still there. And so yeah. I think we should, you know, we should all be careful about. Again, this is a, well, this, yeah, exactly. That's very true, and this is where, as I said before, it's complicated to try to take the informed liberal view because you have to keep throwing in caveats every time you say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and that's, that's just difficult. It's much easier to just get it's up difficult, there. But say, it's difficult, but exactly. It's the, yeah. you know, we, we do these things not because they're easy, but because, but because they're hard. hard. Um, so uh, anyway, um, you know, we, we were fortunate in having all this land and having, we hit a, I mean, it also was just very fortunate that America started to get its founding along at the right point in history, technologically speaking, because we could build railroads not that far into it. You know, it made it easier to expand. If you try to imagine holding together a country the size of America in the pre-railroad era, I mean, the fact that the railroads came as we're getting to places like California, I mean, that's just, that's just, we had a lot of luck. And then we ended up, because of all these things that went right, people wanted to come to America. There were all these opportunities, and that's what they, people say when they talk about your ancestors coming here. They came here for opportunities. There were things you could do here that you couldn't do elsewhere. Right. And so in my view, my version of America, my view of America, is that it's successful because everybody wants to come here and they want to contribute. And they want to do all of these great things. And they have the freedom to do that under our system of government. But you can take those same facts and switch it around to the more right-wing view where they would say that America is successful um, because uh, – um, be, well, in part, they would start off by saying because – so their view of why is America more successful than some of these other places, they would say, well, America is successful in essence because it takes white European culture with Judeo-Christian values of Western civilization – and it moves them to a new location where they aren't weighed down by all of the stultified bureaucracy of Europe. And, you know, that is a view that I could understand a person holding, that America is all the good cultural and religious parts of Europe, but moved so that it doesn't have to deal with all of the legacy costs. Now, I don't agree with that view, but that's definitely the view that I, that I feel like I'm seeing whenever I, uh, whenever, I, um, whenever I get into some of these conversations with people who take the other side. Um, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, where do you <laughs> start? Your level like, of disagreeing like, with this is just, so great. It's blown your mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, where does, where does one begin? Because, um, I mean, you mentioned the legacy cost thing. It's just, it's just wrong. I mean, like Europe European governments are far, far more dynamic than American. Because again, America's government has not fundamentally changed in, I mean, in a, in a hundred years. Like there are... France has gone through how many republics? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, these other you know, European countries are changing their constitutions all the time. I mean, you know, compared to, compared to ours, I mean, our system has sat in its place. I mean, we are a sclerotic, like we are a sclerotic country in many ways. If you actually look at reality and not, um, you know, the, uh, the story that we tell ourselves. Um, yeah, I mean, in other ways we're not, uh, sclerotic, 
but that is precisely because of what you were saying before about welcoming new people and, you know, dynamic, um, you know, people who are, who are seeking opportunity for many of those people, the opportunity is the opportunity to just continue to be alive because they're fleeing for right. over time, you know, lots of political unrest and violence over the course of the, you know, the decades that people were coming, you know, have been coming to America, the centuries. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, this is a, another part of the problem is just like, there are so many dumb myths that are just repeated ad nauseum, often by people who really should know better. Um, you know, and it's hard to strike the balance between like keeping informed with what the national conversation is, uh, when that national conversation is being conducted by, you know, Bill O'Reilly and Joe Scarborough, like what's the, and the Scarborough's like, doing okay. his repentance run now. I mean, you know, I just might be a little late, but he's trying, but like, yeah, no, I, I find him, he is absolutely the worst of America oh, okay. because he's this self-righteous blowhard idiot. And you know, it's too little too late. Yeah. I agree um, with that. And, uh, I go back and forth on, you know, sometimes my, my rage and judgment, uh, gets the better of me and I, I repent for that and am more forgiving, but right now I'm not in a forgiving mood on, on him. Um, but, uh, anyway, but the point is that like, you know, if you're, if you're actually trying to meet real people halfway and understand what they think in order to try to convince them of what is, of what you think, then at some level you have to understand what they're hearing. And, and a lot of them are hearing, you know, these, I mean, they're, they're getting information from these very tainted sources. And so it's just hard to, uh, it's hard to start the conversation, but again, you know, we, we have no choice. Right. But I mean, try. the Trump administration to a certain extent seems like, the reality that you get when people suddenly realize you can just lie. Right. And like you, cause, because we used to at least try to couch our lies in carefully coded political language so that you could walk back and, and say that it wasn't, you could argue and parse why what you said wasn't really a lie because it depends on what you mean, what you mean by the definition of is, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and that's part of what got Hillary Clinton in trouble. I think in the last election is that she kept using, even though what she was saying was more fundamentally accurate than what Trump was saying, it was couched in this language people were so used to as being evasive that when Trump simply came out and told a lie boldly, people yeah. said, oh, well, that's got to be true. Or even if it's not true, at least the essence behind it is true. Uh, yeah, well, and I mean, and like you said before, um, and you also had Bernie uh, right. lying his pants off in ways that were not as vile or dangerous as, you know, Trump. Yeah, Trump's on the lying scale, wise. Trump is about a ten. Bernie was probably like a four. You know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, on that scale, Clinton would have been like a one or a two. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just saw, you know, a couple weeks ago, the the Post um, fact checker did a, you know, a piece on this thing that Bernie put out that was like, um, you know, the top six. Richest people in the world have the same wealth as like the bottom sixty percent or forty percent or whatever it was, and you know it's one of these things. that's like, of course he's gonna try to make that case and use such a grotesque example because it jumps off the page. It just seems 
you know, fundamentally unfair. Um, but then, you know, the post went into how, like, okay, how do you calculate these figures? What does this mean? And the only way to calculate that figure, what you end up doing is basically taking medical students, you know, p- young people with a oh, lot of debt. So people who are in debt counting as negative, val- negative counting wealth. Exactly, uh-huh. Counting as negative wealth. And you take them and lump them in with, and in fact, you know, they end up like further down the list, you know, at the bottom of the pile relative to, you know, peasants in Northern India who have no assets, but therefore, you know, no debt. Zero, not negative 100,000. But are at negative, exactly. But are at zero instead of negative 100,000, even though their economic productivity is, you know, and prospects for future, um, you know, future wealth gaining are you know, are nil compared to, again, these, you know, like recent college graduate or professional school graduates who, um, you know, aren't, you know, they don't have roads paved with gold, but, um, but there are reasons for their debt. You know, it's not a racket. It's not only a racket. Like there are rackets, but it's not like, you know, it's not as, uh, simple as these, slogans and uh you know cherry-picked examples make it make it seem and yeah again i just i just bridle at that because um it's just uh right if you try to make points if you try to make a point which is somewhat legitimate but you make it with questionable means then you're what you're doing is you're furthering questionable means as an acceptable method of discourse and that might not seem like a huge problem in the short run but it really adds up over time, and eventually you do get people like Trump where people have said, well, politicians are always dodgy in their answers. They're always saying things that are slightly not true. So we're not because he's not using the same stupid, evasive tricks we've seen, we're going to assume it's honest, even though the content is even more lies. Right. Um, and that's just once you stop <clears throat> caring about intellectual honesty, it's a dark road you can go down. And it's difficult because it is, as we said yeah. before, it's hard to be perfectly honest without throwing a million caveats, footnotes, parenthetical asides into every speech you give. Right. Well, I think you end up being Hillary the... Clinton and you end up losing. Yeah. Well, and part of it is, I mean, we're, we're like talking about the crisis when what led to the crisis is a very long process. And it's right. easier to talk to people uh, in a way that one, you know, they understand the, you know, if you have to throw in the caveats and footnotes, they can understand and follow you, or you don't need to because they already know the caveats and footnotes and background and premises. Um, but that's only the case in a, you know, in a society that knows its history, that knows its economics, that knows its, you know, political theory and, you know, and, and, and part of the problem is this, um, call it neoliberal, call it, you know, Republican market oriented, you know, slashing of, um, investment in society, you know, in public education, in, um, you know, unwillingness to, to support programs that increase access to early childhood education and unwilling to deal with the well, I mean, the education issue there there are a lot of there are a lot of obstacles to that um, yeah. from both sides. But you know, but the but the pu- slashing public universities is a is a huge huge problem um, that does seem like you know the the vast 
you know, majority of the guilt for that is, is on the, is on the political right. Right. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree with, uh, you know, cause, cause here's the problem is in the short term, what we're talking about, about, you know, like, um, if you support questionable means of persuading people, then, you know, you're, that's what leads to Trump. Well, it's like, okay, sort of right now in short, in the short term, you know, the incentive to fight fire with fire is very strong and it's not necessarily wrong. Um, because you do have to take power in order to turn in order to implement the changes that could begin to turn, you know, the direction of this ship. Um, but over the long term, like what has led to this point has absolutely been, you know, willingness to shade the truth and lie, but also to, you know, impoverish the sort of knowledge base of the citizenry, you know, not support education, not support this kind of basic background of, of knowledge about how the world works, how our country came to, you know, came to occupy this position that we're in. And that's a, that's a different issue than just the sort of political stuff that right. we were talking about. A second and ago. I think that some of those would be great topics for future discussions for future of podcasts, America. Yeah. I think we've hit a good stopping point for today's podcast. So for today's uh, Soapbox sign-off, I have a special treat for everyone. Uh, we have our first listener email that has come in. <laughs> Technically, it is our second after uh, one that we got as soon as we set it up from Andy from Google, but he didn't really end with a question. So instead, we're going to this email comes to us from Thomas Wheel. Uh, you may recognize that last name and reading this email may uh, explain a lot about a certain co-host on this program. I will read for you now our first listener email. To gentlemen, e.g. Charles and Trayspawn, I have not hitherto had the love, patience, persistence, or time to listen to an entire hour of the Fear, Honor, and Interest podcast, which, because of my obsessive need to actually hear and absorb every word, can take 30 minutes to an hour longer than the indicated running time. But, having just returned from two weeks in Europe and faced with two weeks' worth of washed and dried laundry to be sorted, folded, and put away, and my girlfriend was insistent that I change every item of clothing except for my shoes, my Leander jacket, and my 1970 Yale crew cap every day, Today was the day, and episode 10 was the feast. Great stuff, thank you. The political, social, cultural content is terrific, as is the dialogue dynamic, so there's mu much too much to try to comment on. So my comments are idiosyncratic expressions of delight and or curiosity relating to some of the lanyap that is served in your rich smorgasbordish goulash, not to mix my culinary references to mixed Cajun, Scandinavian, and Hungarian dishes. I delight that beg the question, evidence that I listened to material near the end, is one of my favorite bugaboos. My brother and I spent two weeks driving through New Zealand, our mother's country of origin, this spring, and Richard used the phrase incorrectly. I corrected him. He pushed back. I said, fuck you. Most of our exchanges over the next two days ended with, fuck you. On the third day, I proposed, fuck you, truce for the balance of the day, which was successfully implemented with the ultimate effect of his learning the correct use of beg the question. You might take on Folsom for your next example, although there is some evidence that its incorrect usage is now so common that it would be Knutish folly to try to reverse the tide. Curiosity. Why single out Harriet Myers when you also had Alberto Gonzalez as a great example of Bush's I like you so you'd make a good Supreme Court justice attitude? In the interest of full disclosure that I spent four years in school with W, two at Andover and two at Yale, and couldn't conceive of his entering the White House and can't forgive him for not Vietnam, Afghanistan, or Iraq, 
or for presenting Maury's with an oil painting he did of a bulldog and misspelling Maury's. <laughs> Drives a certain amount of animosity that has been diluted only by a reasonably civilized post-presidential record and the extraordinary badness of Trump. Neither came close to being fit for the job. Keep up the good, entertaining, and informative work. Thomas, a.k.a. Datto, father of David, a.k.a. Trace Bond. Now, uh, there was a question in there which asked us <laughs> – David is currently drinking from his Maury's uh, cup. Um, uh, there is a question in there which is why did we discuss Harriet Myers and not Alberto Gonzalez? David, would you like to take this on? Um, I mean, my, I mean, first of all, I just remember, um, I, I didn't actually remember Alberto Gonzalez being nominated for, or moot, even mooted as a Supreme Court. I do not recall that position. either, which would be part of why we forgot it. Exactly. So, uh, either we both just forgot that that happened, but I think, um, I mean, he wasn't a Supreme Court guy. He was the attorney general. And so, um, I think there's just more leeway for cronyism within an administration even in a position as important as the attorney general and so it just didn't become it wasn't it just wasn't raised to that same level um and i mean it's really obscene i mean the the harry myers thing was was obscene at a level of you know sarah palin and actually you know this is the sign off so we should just be signing off and it's already we could have made this one a nice lean you know conversation but now it's gonna i had no intention of doing that Okay, well, um, but the the point you made before about, um, you know, about what makes our country great and science and technology, well, there's a great example of that recently in the, and again, you know, Sarah Palin, uh, one of her, you know, bugaboos was, you know, she talked about it like, oh, these, you know, National Science Foundation, it's like, taxpayer dollars are going to study fruit flies. Can you believe oh, it? Oh, yes. Fruit I... flies. It's like, well, how about that? The Nobel has gone to, uh, you know, in, in life sciences has gone to, you know, basic research that relied on uh, fruit flies as nice. the object of analysis. It's because basic science enriches our society because it leads to all other science. And, you know, God only knows how many people's lives will be saved and improved uh, because of the, you know, technology that comes out of the basic science that relied on the fruit, fly, you know, studying the fruit flies. Um, and so anyway, what does right. that have no, to do with a, Alberto I mean, Gonzalez? Something that drove me crazy when that happened was it wasn't long after that happened that I met up with, because she was in town. If you remember Sarah Woodfield from our year at Yale, mm. um, that, uh, she was in town in DC precisely because she was going to a fruit fly conference <laughs> about studying fruit flies, because anyone who knows, I mean, Using fruit fly as an example, I know sometimes there are some silly sounding ones where it's like they're checking how crickets perform in this temperature. And that one I don't understand immediately. I mean, I'd have to actually look at why they're doing it. But when you talk about fruit flies, you have to basically know nothing about science to think that fruit flies are the ones that, you know, it's silly to be studying. Right. Um, like pretty much nothing, especially since what is one of the big things that fruit flies help study with? Oh, Down syndrome. You know, it's it's it just yeah, having Sarah right. Palin said that was just so frustrating. And I mean, it was, of course, similar to when um, when uh, 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 Bobby Jindal made that comment about, oh, they're doing volcano monitoring research. And it was like a week later, there was a volcano in Hawaii that the monitoring was able to alert people to. And it's just, you know, how dumb do you have to be? How well, dumb do you have to not be? even necessarily yeah. dumb, but in the bullshit sense of <clears throat> I've heard about this and I'm not going to look it up. I'm just going to assume that it's bad. 
Right. Um, Bush has taken us a bit of field of Alberto Gonzalez, but um, I don't remember him being mooted for the Supreme Court. Um, if he had been, that would certainly have been bad. But I do feel, as you said, Harriet Myers was an extra special screw you to the Senate in a way that was reminiscent of uh, Caligula appointing Incantatus to uh, to be consul, which is that right. it's, it's about this spectacle of, look, I'm the one in charge. You have to put this person through who's a personal friend of mine or associated with me. And what are you going to do to stop me? Right. And it was, and it again, laid the foundation. Cause again, you know, there, there are, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, George Bush nostalgia, this sort of moment of like, Oh, look at this thing that Trump said, compare it to what George W fucking Bush said, uh, which was so much more classy and honorable. And um, obviously that's valid and important, but fundamentally in order to understand this phenomenon, we have to understand how, the Republican party prostrated itself to Trump and, you know, Bush laid those foundations. Uh, the most recent uh, foundations were obviously laid by the Bush administration and also sadly McCain in choosing Palin as his running mate. And yeah. so, you know, uh, Myers precisely because it is like, okay, politics as usual. We all get it within an administration. There's going to be, cronyism and spoils and you know dishonorable stuff but the supreme court should be on a different level and so that's why i think harriet myers right. really stands out yeah and i mean it, it is like the one good thing about some of the awfulness that's happened with supreme court since then you know the way they stole the neil gorsuch supreme court seat was just horrific but at yeah. least they chose a qualified jurist like i was going through right. my rules of civil, civil procedure <clears throat> stuff uh, at work the other day and, you know, I just opened up as I opened up the front first page and it was talking about some of the professors and um, judges who had contributed to this book. And Neil Gorsuch's name was on there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like he was, you know, we don't I, 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 I'm mad that they stole the seat. I'm mad that his views are, in my perspective, rather retrograde, but he's qualified. It's not like Harriet Myers or Alberto Gonzalez would have been. Right. So. All right. Well, that'll that ends our first bit of listener mail. I think our audience will have learned quite a bit more about where David comes from now that they've heard this. Uh, I will remind you all, if you want to have your email read on the podcast, send it to fear, honor and interest podcast <laughs> at Gmail dot com. We do read every email, all three of them so far, two of which were Gmail status related. Um, and uh, you can also, of course, put in a request that we not read the entire email on air. But what's the fun in that? See you next week. Bye.